Welcome to ICTUS, the evolving conductor, your source for everything conducting, teaching, and lifelong learning on and off the podium. Treat yourself to a dose of musical inspiration as we pick the minds of great conductors. I'm your host, Lisa Tatum. Hi, everyone. I hope you're staying warm this week. We are experiencing quite the winter storm here in Texas. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrea Brown, who is the Associate Director of Bands at the University of Maryland. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for joining us on ICTUS today. Thanks for having me. Something that I like to do with all of my guests is we just start off and just talk a little bit about your history, especially regarding when it was that you knew that you wanted to be a musician. Well, I am from a tiny, tiny little town in the middle of nowhere between Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee. And I think about 7,000 people have been fairly consistent with the population of the town. So, you know, but we did have our own high school, you know, school system in our town, but it was a smaller program. Uh, But anyway, I I got started really in music with taking piano lessons, uh, starting that in second grade. My grandmother had played organ and piano at a church and and she she was still a church musician. And it was just something that was kind of, I don't know if I really wanted to, but it was just, I remember just something we I started doing when I was in second grade, but I did enjoy it. I really had a wonderful piano teacher all through, I studied with her through second grade, all through high school and really enjoyed playing piano, still enjoy playing piano. And then I, in our school system, we started band in sixth grade. I was fortunate, of course, tiny town. I knew uh, you had the same band director all through mm-hmm. middle school and high school. And I was fortunate that I already knew him before getting into sixth grade. But I knew like I really wanted to be in band. One, because I, I really thought a lot of him. And then I just, you know, really liked music. I was in church choir, that kind of thing. Because we didn't have choir in school. That was yeah. not a, we only had band. Like if you wanted to do music in school, it was band. And yep. so I knew that I wanted to do band. I originally wanted to play clarinet because my dad okay. played clarinet in middle school. And so that's what I wanted to play originally. But my band director talked me into basically kind of bribed me into playing the French horn. (laughs) Yes. And there's a lot of, uh, I remember, I have to say like, it's in my mind, I'm remembered in a certain way. I don't know if this is exactly how it went down, but basically it was something of, there weren't any horn players in the grades above us, Mm -hmm. except for like the senior class. And so there was like, you know, all these grades where there were no horn players. And so my band director, you know, talked with me and, and talked with my parents and he said, you know, look, if you'll play horn, I'll let you borrow one to leave at home and one at school so you don't have to take it back and forth. Because, you know, it was those terrible, like, snail-shaped cases and you had to take uh. it on the bus. And he also said, if you learn how to play it well, you'll go to college. I, this is how I remember it. You'll go to college for free. And, of course, <laughs> and, and no one in my family had been to college before. Wow. And so this was just, you know, it was, again, I don't know if that's really what he said, but that's what I remember. So I said, well, sure, I'll play horn. So, and I did, and it was definitely not easy to, an instrument to start on because I did start on horn, not trumpet or anything else. And, and it was, it was a challenge, but I took to it pretty quickly and made it into our little region bands and all that. And I just really enjoyed all of those experiences, but Mm -hmm. 
in our area, there is this thing, and I don't know if this would be the same where you grew up, but in the spring, there is a, let's say, a very active festival parade season that happens. And so the schools in the area, all even the middle school bands and the high school bands like march in these parades, you know, whether it's the, in our region, it's the Strawberry Festival and the Teapot Festival and the Iris Festival and all of those things. Yep. So there's basically a second marching season in the school year. Well, I started because there were no horns. I was doing well enough. I was asked if I would like to march with the middle school seventh and eighth graders in the festival parade that spring when I was a sixth grader. And so I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, I bet. And and I also got to play mellophone, which is so much easier than playing horn, too. So there was just like this like, oh, cool. You just, you know, everything just comes out a little easier. So... I totally enjoyed that. And I also, there was this, there was a drum major in the middle school, little parade band. So I figured out then that I wanted to do that. And when I was in eighth grade, I was drum major of my middle school marching parade band. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I also in eighth grade, because again, back to this, no horns in the grades above us, I was asked to perform with the high school marching band in the fall and you know and that that happens in some places kind of around the country but i just thought that again that was just like whoa the coolest thing ever and so it was i do remember this time in eighth grade when i knew then that music is what i wanted to do and i think even at that point i probably attached band director to it though that would change and ebb and flow as kind of time went on but in that moment because that was my world I knew that I wanted to do it I was also like said I was doing well when region honor bands and having those experiences which was so much different than my own tiny little band yeah and all of those things were just so influential on me you know getting to expose with playing different repertoire and playing under different conductors and I craved you know all through high school once once those really kind of you know there's lots of those honor band opportunities i just anyone that i could go to i was just all about it i loved yeah. it and i was ended up being drum major again in high school and so that just further reinforced but you know as i said kind of in eighth grade i, I knew that that was the kind of the path that i wanted to go i would say once i got into undergrad i had my moments of where i focused more on horn performance and wanting to and be a At this point, I had in my mind that I really wanted to teach it like a small college, maybe, and teach horn and also maybe music history, because I always liked music history. Okay. And I had gone to Brevard for a couple of summers. This was after I marched drum corps, and I was just kind of really kind of focused on, I loved playing and was trying to kind of focusing on that. So I ended up going to UNCG for the first time to get a master's in horn performance. Mm Mm-hmm. But while I was there, my first year, I was assigned to be a graduate assistant to do graduate assistant work with Dr. Locke in the band office. Because I did not know him before I went to UNCG. Like, I went there to do more performance. And I ended up taking a conducting class with him because, of course, I liked conducting from my drum major in music ed and all of that. But taking that class with him advanced conducting graduate level whatever that's what kind of turned me back into oh no this is this is what I want to do yeah so 
you know, you said that's when you kind of knew that that you wanted to study conducting more and be on that side of things. What was the next step after that for you? Well, I finished up my horn performance masters and I, again, really enjoyed playing. I was still all in on that. It was just always for me, I was wanting to add more to things. And so mm-hmm. I talked with my my professors and things in the, in, the, in the administration there and was able to start the process while I was finishing up my master's in home performance to start a master's in music education with a conducting cognate. And okay. so I ended up staying an extra year. So I was there for three years and got two master's degrees. And that third year, UNCG had recently started a third concert band, you know, mostly for non-majors, the university band. And I was given the opportunity to be the conductor of that band my last year there of my master's. And so my first band was the UNCG University Band for that year. And with just a, an honor and a privilege and, you know, like it just yeah, got to choose the rep and all of those things. And it was fantastic yeah. opportunity. So grateful, you know, that Dr. Locke was thought enough of me to allow me to have that experience and work with those students. That's so cool. That's really awesome. When you were a young teacher and after that experience, did you have any people or conductors that you tried to emulate through your teaching style or anybody that you really looked up to? Well, obviously Dr. Locke was a huge influence on me. Wonderful musician, but also just a really strong example of organizing rehearsals and logistics and just running a program too. Mm And just, you know, making sure that everybody feels like really informed as to what's going on and what our goals are, those kind of things. And I always just really enjoyed that aspect. And again, that doesn't overshadow his musicianship, but it was just the combination because you don't always find that. Some people are like the really strong musicians, but the other stuff is not necessarily their strong suit. And so I always, I definitely brought a lot of that with me. My first gig after I left UNCG was teaching middle school in Milwaukee. Wow. Which... As we've already established, a girl that has spent most of her time in the South, this was a, like a big change. And it was, a, it was a challenge for sure. It was a school that was grades four through eight. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very, very fortunate to have a wonderful colleague there. Her name was Mary Bursick, who she had actually, she had been a band director, but was currently teaching orchestra in the, at the school at that time. And she was so kind to take me under, you know, this person that thought, you know, I'm coming out of school with my two master's degrees and I'm, but still middle school kids will, will level you. (laughs) Especially if you're figuring out that that is not necessarily your best fit. God bless middle school band directors out there. I thank you for everything that you, anybody that teaches middle school and the arts. I taught middle school band for two years. I'm very thankful for that time. Very thankful, but that is not for me. (laughs) Yes. And it's good that you learn those things. Uh, But she was so, so wonderful to me in like helping me out with just lots of support and mentoring and and we still stay in touch. I just am so appreciative of that. I, at that time, I was also starting to teach drum corps. Okay. I taught a couple of summers as I was starting this job in Milwaukee. Yeah. And so my, in my first job of teaching drum corps was working with Sue Samuels at Carolina Crown. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely considered her a resource and, and a, a mentor 
but yeah, those folks, you know, Dr. Locke's still a huge resource for me. And, and so is Sue. She's a, you know, I would definitely consider her one of my best friends, but I also think of her as, as a mentor and a person that I can bounce ideas off of. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about getting students and getting people involved with things like drum corps, or you mentioned Brevard earlier, and it's getting outside of your home and you get to meet all of these different teachers and these different people with different experiences and backgrounds. And that's really where I learned a lot about how I teach is going off. And I mean, I had great, great teachers in college, right? It, for sure, who taught me all the concepts of teaching, but it was going out and meeting all these people from all over the country. And it's, you've got your grab bag, right? It's like, I like what this person does. And I like what this person, that not for me, it works for them. It won't work for me. I'm going to keep that out of the bag. But Oh my gosh, yes. That is so true. Preparing for talking with you, I, it made me think of a, a teacher that I had at Brevard. I was at Brevard two summers. And I only got to work with her one summer. And, you know, it's not a name that necessarily people will know, but her name was Dottie Bennett. And she was my, my horn teacher that summer. And she just, she changed my life, you know, just as far as like how she taught. She was a, a female brass player, wow. you know, at the, and you don't, I would have to say I wasn't totally aware of how rare her career would have been because she was you know at the end of her career sure. at that point and just really totally realizing what all she would have had to struggle through but she just she pulled no punches she never lowered her expectations you were always going to rise she's going to get you there and i i really you know that's still something that i i I think about and appreciate to this day, but yes, it definitely, it's not something that I would have experienced, you know, in going through college, I'd say the same thing of my different experiences of teaching different places with different drum corps and working with different staffs and not just music folks, but even the visual folks of yeah. how they do things. And as you said, you just, you watch and you're like, I like that. That's going with me. I don't like that. That yep. will stay here, you know, and it was a huge part of my development as a educator. I understand for sure. Very thankful for all my drum corps experiences. And for those of you who don't know, we're still involved in this activity. Like this show is so much about conducting, but I'm very much still involved with the Academy Drum and Bugle Corps. I know you have all your resources everywhere and it's, it's great people doing awesome things and it's a good time. You started a group on social media a couple of years ago and I would love it if you would share a little bit about that. And some of the experiences you've gathered from that. Well, uh, let's see. In May of 2018, as I was leaving my position at the University of Michigan and transitioning to the University of Maryland, I had been really affected by the events of the Me Too movement that had really kind of come into into view in the, the fall before that. So, you know, like eight or so months before that. Sure. And... I was trying to think of a way that it was definitely connected to that, though it might not appear as that when you see this group. But I was looking for a way because I felt like if there was a way for women in our profession to be able to connect more and know that there are more of us out there than it might appear to be. And if we got to know each other, that 
we could be stronger together because when you get to know someone and, and can help and celebrate and appreciate, you know, their successes and their challenges and all that, you can just build a stronger community rather than feeling like we have to compete against each other because there's only certain pieces of the pie that we have access to. There is pie for all, everyone. There is yes. pie for all. There is, you're we're not going to run out of the pie. <laughs> yes. And so Women Rising to the Podium came out of that process of just me thinking about like how what is a way that to try to create some positive out of this these painful stories and the realities of of our profession and so I talked to some friends and definitely folks that maybe I didn't know as well but I knew like other folks that kind of built a little network of folks that I really thought highly of and and knew that they would be good sounding boards for as we kind of got this thing started. And we launched it uh, at the end of May 2018. And I think there was over a thousand folks and within 24 hours, but it's group is, is four women, folks that identify as female that are either band directors in training, current band directors or retired band directors. And it's now over 3,700 members from different places across the world. And really the focus is to celebrate, support, and just connect with other women in our profession. And it's been a, a really exciting journey to kind of watch the, it, it evolve and, and grow. It's been a process too, to try to keep the intention of, of how it was created, you know, because some folks get in, they might want it to be something that it wasn't necessarily intended to be. But I, I found it to be a group of people that where women in our profession feel safe asking questions that they might not feel safe asking them in other arenas. And sure. actually, I love that part, even when it's the 54th time that the question has come up about what to wear on the podium. Those are always like kind of, oh, here we go. Here's this this one again. But it's fine because through this too, I've also realized that I'm very fortunate that I have a a group, a tribe, or a connection of, of women that I I reach out to when I have those questions. And yeah. this group has taught me that not everybody has that. And women rising to the podium is that for them. You know, whether it's asking about what to wear or how to deal with maternity leave or sexism or, you know, those kind of things. I love that it's a place that folks have a safe space to ask those questions. But then what my favorite parts, which I feel like we're still growing and developing is feeling okay with celebrating our successes. Yes. And yes. That, because it's just not something that women are always comfortable in doing. Right. Well, you're, you don't want to show off too much, right? Because right. everyone, well, she thinks she's better than everybody else. And men do that too. I mean, don't get me wrong, but yes. yeah, we don't always feel comfortable celebrating our successes with the world. Right. Obviously, this time, as we're recording this in December of 2020, and it's not been the best set of months for activities and opportunities for successes to celebrate. And so, you know, that's, I, I don't know that we've totally encaptured the successes that we've had, because I think everybody's just kind of hanging on of, you know, how do we survive and, and try our, our best to thrive through this. But I'm really looking forward to the time soon where we're able to do more of that again. Thank you so much for sharing about that. And I personally am really grateful that you started that group back in 2018. And thank you. 
Well, thank you for being a part of it. You know, this project all started with the idea of really looking at the million dollar question, right? What does great musicianship mean? And this is something that is so hard to answer, but I think about this often, right? Great technique in regards to great musicianship, specifically from our our side of things on the podium, why and how our technique matters in front of our students, especially getting them to find depth of musicianship within themselves. Do you have any thoughts on that? Are there any ways that we as working conductors can work on our technique and work on those sort of things? I think it's it's definitely important to make sure that those aspects are there because I think technique is what allows you to move freely through your musical expression. Yeah. And so if you don't have those available to you, whether that's playing your instruments or conducting, you know, you are going to be stymied in some way. And I'm not saying that you have to have the very best technique at all the things, but it's just making sure that your technique is at a strong enough le a level that it allows you to not have to think about it so you can just be musical. Mm -hmm. And I think as a conductor and, you know, and as I train young conductors, it's very similar to working on your skills as an instrumentalist on your instrument. It's trying to identify the things that are the weakest for you. It's mm -hmm. a really tough thing to come to, to become aware of, to realize those things and to, to really hone in on, you know, what those things are and, and maybe why, and then, trying your best to focus your time and your efforts on improving those things when it's so much easier to spend time in the things that you already do well. Oh yeah. And so I, you know, that's not any kind of like newsflash that no one knows, but that's something that I just, it, it's as true with conducting as it is with as my horn playing is just being kind of real with myself and saying, okay, that that part's not so great right now or as good as it was or whatever got us it's time to spend some some time on that and honing skills so that it's not something that you have to spend so much bandwidth on and again that's what allows you to just really lean into your musicianship and not have to worry about whether or not this or this is like in your facilities sure i'm curious do you have any tips or tricks little practice habits that you give to your undergraduate conducting students. The reason why I ask this is when we're, we've been in the field for so long, we forget about, oh, I remember in my conducting class, my teacher told me to do this or what. Do you have any little things that you subscribe to people? Yeah. One of the things, and I, I use this when I do workshops at, at conferences too. I don't, I don't remember who I glean this from because it's not my original idea. But I think it's something that's important to remember. This is crosses beyond teaching beginning conductors. Right. When you're out, especially with public school teaching, and and when I tell the beginning conductors, it's you have to really be aware and conscious of what you are showing your ensemble and if they are paying attention to you. Because it's really easy when you're working on notes and rhythms and getting things exactly right that your conducting expression becomes kind of muted yeah. and they're not paying attention to it anyway because they're focused on these technical aspects. And so one of the things that I'd like to 
share with folks to kind of help bring that back in if you feel like you've lost that ability, you know, if the students maybe or if the performers aren't honed in on what you're trying to show them is to just have a moment during your rehearsal. And it could be part of your warm up, but pick a scale that you want to work on that day. But the students need to be focused on you. And every single note of that scale needs to have a different dynamic, a different articulation, a different duration. Mm. And you as a conductor have to create that. And so you're creating each single sound. But the students have to watch you for each one of those sounds in order to try to match what you're wanting and also match the performers around them. And so it gets them out of the music. It's something technically that no one's worried about, hopefully. And again, it's a time that you yourself can focus on your conducting gesture mechanism and, and you get a chance to also be creative. Yes. I was just thinking that that's awesome. Yeah. Because you have to decide what sound it is you want before you show it. Right. And so it's just something that's, it's not, it doesn't take that long. It's something that you're probably already doing in some form or fashion as far as playing a scale and it can change every day, every time. And I think it's something that can just be really helpful with keeping that connection of, oh, I really can shape sound and I really can communicate with these folks, no matter how advanced or unadvanced, you know, that they are. That's what I love. You could do that with a seventh grade class. I mean, heck, sixth graders in the spring, you could absolutely do that with sixth graders. You can do that with seventh graders. When I was at the University of Utah, Scott Hagen was the conductor of the wind ensemble there. And I remember going in and we would do a chorale every now and then in some sort of little ensemble technique. And that's, you know, university wind ensemble. That's fantastic. I love that. And what I love even more about that is that you're still working technique, but especially with your younger students, you're also teaching them artistry and musicianship, and it's it's combined together. Oh, that's so good. I'm so glad you shared that. I just really like that one because it's great on both sides. You're not just doing it for them because we forget that we need to practice conducting. Definitely, it's real that you don't have a lot of time to do it. And this is a way for you to practice while also having your students develop their musicianship as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is just fantastic. Do you have any specific habits throughout your career and your life that you think have really helped continue your process of being a lifelong learner or have continued to promote your own musicianship? I don't know if I think of them as habits, but I, I definitely, I try to put myself in positions where I have to learn and experience new things, mm-hmm. which isn't always easy because, you know, in our business, like it's really easy to kind of just get into, this is what we do and this is how we do it. But that's really what I just try to kind of push myself to be open to experience new things or maybe an old thing in a new way, trying to gather different viewpoints to in, inform that. I, that's, that's probably, yeah, that's probably the closest thing that I have to that. It goes back to the human experience. So much of our musicianship is not just like we just talked about technique, right? But it's not just that. It's Music is a human art form created by humans for other humans. And when we contribute to our own humanity and those sort of things, it can't help but improve that side of what we do. 
Yeah. Well, we also have a playlist going for our listeners to check out. And I, people have asked me this, so I'm going to say it now. There is, if you go to the podcast description, wherever you're listening, there's a link tree. You click that link tree link. It's going to take you to a place where you can find the Spotify and YouTube playlist. But do you have any pieces that you'd like to talk about that we can add to those lists today? Sure. I, there's probably a theme here in that they're just really, there's a lot of, there's a lot being said musically in these pieces. I think one of those pieces that really, I would say, uh, kind of hit me the most the first time I heard it, and I've just been very fortunate that I actually have gotten to conduct it, is Hill Stork's American Guernica. Oh, okay. Which is his musical reflection on the Birmingham bombing of 1963. Mm -hmm. And I heard it in a recording first. And I just remember it was while I was working on my doctorate and I went to Dr. Locke and I just said, you know, if, because I, at that point, you know, you got your assignments for guest conducting the wind ensemble. Right, right. And I just said, like, I would really, 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 really like to work on this piece. And, and he was, again, uh, gracious enough to allow me to do that. And I just, it's, it's such a powerful piece. Just everything about it's so raw and visceral and, and obviously mournful and brings horrible, terrible feelings. But at the same time, there's this bit of hope that there's one of the positive things of thinking about these girls. Yeah. Both the sadness and the thinking about what they're not going to be able to do in their life, but you know, just the the joy that they brought folks when they were alive and then the hope that things are going to get that we're gonna move forward and eventually will there'll be progress. Yeah. So there's that piece. I would say another piece that has been really one that I like to share with if folks aren't aware of it is and I heard it first in its original version, which is the Charles Ives Concord Sonata for piano. Yeah. I had a professor in undergrad that performed the entire thing, the entire piece uh, at a concert. And I just remember like, I was just so, I, I, I was just, whoa, this, this piece. And then there's a particular movement, the Alcott's. And I was like, oh my gosh, this would be so amazing for winds. And then I found out that it had already been transcribed for winds. Nice. Um, and there are a couple of versions of that. I have to say, I personally prefer the Thurston arrangement, though I'm not, I don't know that I'm in the majority on that. In typical Ives fashion, it's some mashups of some familiar tunes. And it's just so, you know, the, the, the different moods that it takes you through. It's just a really powerful and touching piece from the first time I heard it in undergrad through today, I don't, I don't get tired of listening to it. That's really cool. Add to that list, I would say, which people are, are, if they're not familiar with, they're either getting familiar with the name or, and this is probably the tune that they got to know him through is Omar Thomas's of this new day begun. Like I'm just, it's, there's not anything that I can say about that piece that really, I'm just so grateful that he shared that piece with the world. And it's, I think it's one that's going to be very special for a really long time. I hope it is. Agreed. Rodrigo's Adagio for Wind Instruments. So good. 
if folks are not familiar with that. That's one that that's probably coming more from a player perspective. It's a challenging horn part, but I really enjoyed playing that piece. I haven't got to conduct it yet, I have to admit, but I'm enamored with it. And then the same thing would be along with that the last one that I would share is uh, Jonathan Dove's Figures in the Garden, which is a chamber piece. And it was written for the bicentennial of the Mozart. It's a celebration and it, it's playing off of Marriage of Figaro. The whole piece is just, I, I remember I was being just really affected by it. it. But the last two movements, if you don't listen to anything else, definitely check out the last two movements. It's gorgeous. Oh my gosh. I love, love that piece. And what a beautiful concept of a piece. And I would suggest to people, I would say this, you don't have to go listen or know Marriage of Figaro, the opera, to understand and appreciate the beauty of Figures in the Garden. But if you at least know the storyline of what's going on, it does help in your understanding of the piece. But golly, what a gem. I'm so glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, that's so great. I'm glad that you like that one too. Yeah, it's on my conducting bucket list. I have a little. Yes, yes, <laughs> for sure. I would. I look forward to being able to revisit that piece if from the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what a good one. We're gonna wrap up with a few rapid fire questions. Our first question is a concert you'll never forget. I did a little thing for myself, and I bought. I bought a last minute fourth row ticket to hear the Berlin Philharmonic play New World Symphony in, in Berlin. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's really cool. Next one. What's the best meal you've ever eaten? Probably the best meal I've ever eaten is any time that I get to have blue crabs and, you know, just cracking them open and doing the thing. Crab cakes. It, I, I'm not uh, my I'm not originally from Maryland, um, but my dad is. And oh, so cool. I grew up I grew up eating seafood or he grew up on the eastern shore. And so it's been nice to be back in that area of the world and, and have access to that on a more regular basis. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have any musical heroes? I'd say H. Robert Reynolds, I definitely have to give him a cape, mostly because he's so inspiring still in that as much as he's done, he's still a sponge. Like he still just wants to learn mm -hmm. and he knows there's still so much to learn and do. And it's just, that's, that's what I love about seeing him do his thing and hearing him talk and being around him. For sure. Is there anything that you've binged, watched lately and loved? The Flight Attendant. Oh. On HBO Max. I don't know. Okay. It's, it just finished up and it's chaotic craziness, but it's entertaining. Okay. Awesome. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that one. Yes. You can meet any musician alive or dead for coffee. Who do you meet and why? Though I'm not sure exactly what the conversation would be like. I would really enjoy, I think, though I'm sure there'd be some things that I would definitely 
be taken aback by or especially a, a different time. But Mahler. Yeah. I have questions for him. A lot of questions. But I don't, you know, I don't know that I really want the answer solved some of those two. But mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. And then it's totally the other other side of the world frame, however you want to put it. But I mean, I would I would love to have coffee with Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> the queen herself. Yeah, I, I just would be inspired to just hear her talk about even more so than what we've been able to, to, that she shared with us, but her, her choices, her putting her all female band together and just her evolution of this is me and love it or don't because this is, this is who I am. Yeah. Two great options there. Oh my gosh. She's kind of like, (laughs) yes. I love it. Okay. Last one. I promise this one's quite a bit easier. What's one thing that you're grateful for right now? I am just incredibly grateful for being able to to reach out to, to friends and your your people, your group. I've had my experiences of we did, got to do some in-person experiences this past fall, but they were, you know, pretty limited in to what extent that those were and I'm just so grateful that I've had folks that would always take the time to answer the phone or answer a text or you know, those kind of things, I'd say that that's, I'm really grateful for friends and family that were willing to do that. And I think it would have been a lot harder to kind of get through this year without them. Yeah, for sure. This has been just so much fun. Thank you so much for speaking with us and taking the time out of your day to do this. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for asking me. It was definitely a privilege and an honor. I'm so glad that our paths have crossed Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you check out next week's very special episode when I'll be speaking with Professor H. Robert Reynolds. You can find ICTUS on Facebook and Instagram at IC2US, that's at ICTUS. If you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to hit subscribe. And I'd ask, would you consider telling your friends about it or leaving a review so more people can find it.